James. Okay. How are you, dude? I'm doing well in these interesting times. Yeah, coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Crappy, virtue, I don't know. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, well, as, yeah. Yeah, no, it's just like um, understanding the, the fine intricacies of working from home and just how that can be very different from someone who does have a family versus someone who does not have a family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so today we're talking about Chapter 8 of the story of Us from Way But Why, which is called Political Disney World. Um, and the first thing I thought is, like, as a teenager, I thought that politics was seriously the most boring thing that one could talk about. But now it's one of the f- most favorite things there is. <laughs> I love <laughs> politics. Um, something I sort of say is, who's your favorite sports team? And I say, Tesla, as in the car company. What's your yeah. favorite TV show? US politics. Whereas when I was younger, I didn't follow a company. It's ridiculous, you know. And politics, you know, no, it would be like, I don't know. What did I like at the time? Seinfeld or something would be my favorite TV show. <laughs> so it's just changed <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can remember um, thinking the same thing. And I think it probably didn't have the best representation when we were little because um, to me, it was symbolized by the old man sitting at the table reading a big wordy newspaper with no <laughs> images and no like superhero flying across the screen. So that was boring. Uh, and then there was the Sunday morning show that was just like all about political um, discord or political, um, you know, discussion. And the, the, the presenters were the most bland, monotonous people that you had ever come across. And I was like, what is this drivel that my parents seem to be interested in. So it was just yeah. like a complete failure of um, <laughs> some kind of uh, like interest or understanding. So no, there's, there was zero interest on my side as well. Yeah. Um, so political Disney World, um, I think if you had to summarize it really, really quickly is that there is good characters and bad characters. So in Disney World, there's the hero and there's the villain. And the hero is 100% hero and the villain's 100% villain. Whereas I think that most people are some good, some bad, myself included. But they kind of like, you know, the leader of one party, if that's your party, is the best. And the leader of the other party is the worst. And so there's this oversimplification that kind of goes on. Mm. Um, and this is detrimental uh, because the world is complicated. And I think, you know, trying to understand what you like and what you don't like is important. So I thought maybe we'd start with, the sort of political journeys of ourselves um, to see what is what. Um, so uh, my parents are sort of conservative um, and I, you know, grew up sort of that way. And then when I started to wake up, um, as in have any awareness of what politics was, <laughs> started to think about things. And I think the first real election where I voted with any kind of knowledge was the 2007 election in Australia. Um, before that, I, you know, I was sort of 18 a lot earlier, but I don't really think I had enough knowledge base to have any kind of view, if that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and I voted um, for the Progressive Party in Australia, which is Labor. Um, and, you know, some of the reasons for that were climate change and other things, which I think they take more seriously. Um, and then I sort of flip-flopped. <laughs> uh, so in Australia, you know, voted for Turnbull, who is conservative, but voted most recently for the sort of, you know, progressive side. So I've, I've voted for both ways. Um, since I've been sort of, I would say, making my own political decisions. Uh, and it's been a bit of a, let, you know, probably 50-50. Um, and right now, yeah, um, I think the world's sort of different. Um, that It's wartime, if you want to use that analogy, and that the modus operandi is very different. So in Australia, for instance, you see the Conservative Party talking daily with the unions 
and talking of having done deals to help you know maintain wages and other stuff and so they wouldn't be talking to them at all they wouldn't there's so many things they're doing which are just completely antithetical to their doctrine of what a conservative party is and so i'm very impressed that they've been able to effectively stop worrying about budget surpluses and different things and mm. work with people from quote unquote across the aisle although i don't like that analogy because we're all in this together it's not you know, a, a bit border in Australia and one half and the other half, you know, it's, it's us and, and it's not just Australia, it's humanity too. And so from my perspective, this is, you know, a very difficult sort of tough situation, but I do think that they're working together really well and they've put ideology out. So yeah, that was my sort of uh, journey from conservative to sort of, I would say centrist probably. Well, Duncan, you've, you sounded just like those TV show host on Sunday morning. It was just, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, so my personal journey, like I can probably honestly say I had no real uh, in-depth appreciation or any for that matter until I was in my very late 20s, maybe even my early 30s. <laughs> yeah. um, like, and that was because I probably consciously or not uh, just checked out of the entire process. It was something that I did not find comprehensible. Um, because of the, like, you just had all of these different spectrums or dichotomies, left, right, liberal, libertarianism, progressive, conservative, and I just didn't have the bandwidth to just go in depth into any of those things at that time. Mm. But what I did do is um, I find myself more interested in the individual than the party. And mm. I think um, like Malcolm Turnbull's a great example because I could at least understand him at least I thought I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I could at least feel like I could align myself with his ideals, even though it doesn't necessarily work that way in Australia, where you don't elect a leader, you elect a party. Um, it, it was something that I felt like it was much easier for me to grapple with. Like if this, you know, like everybody loved Bob Hawke, you know, like he could just mm-hmm. you know, down down a, a yardstick <laughs> like nobody's business. But like um, you know, he had this. Um, you know, this charisma that would that would resonate with people, you know, on a very personable level. And I don't think I'm I certainly didn't spend any time understanding his policies or how he actually infect, uh, affected the uh, the Australian um, economy. But it was a very very personable um, relationship. And I think that's where this kind of leads into the political Disney world because of the the sheer level of complexity around it. We, um, you know what Tim Irvin is saying, there's a tendency to oversimplify things, which is why, you know, whenever you watch a Disney movie, it's, you know, perfectly good, which is a good character, and then there's perfectly evil, which are the bad guys. And that helps, I guess, people, you know, like 25-year-old James, understand where he sits in terms of like, all right, so these are the good people over here, and those are bad people over there. Hmm. I think... What you said was really sort of fair. They say that people vote for personalities, not policies. And a quote that I really like from Maya Angelou is, I won't remember what you said, I won't remember what you did, but I will remember how you made me feel. Mm. And I think that a lot of people can not, you know, hear whatever, three minutes of someone speaking here and two minutes there, and that they get a feel for them. And they're like, I like that person, I don't like that person. (laughs) They can't necessarily describe exactly why. But that they can, you know, have a feel for this. And so you see the popularity of leaders. The policies might be very, very similar to another leader, but the popularity is wildly different. Mm. And this can mean that that party will get voted in because this person, you know, is much more likable or, or their personality is, is sort of, 
you know, much better. So I think, you know, Bob Hawke in Australia is very charismatic, if you ask me. Um, whereas I don't think Paul Keating far less charismatic as an example. So two leaders from the sort of, you know, the, the left. But it, it's really, really interesting um, to sort of see this. And so for me, this is this a key thing for everybody? Um, I can find that some people have the worst choice of words and say some things which I don't consider to be well, you know, grounded. But they're clearly really nice people. <laughs> and so you like them. <laughs> Whereas other people say some really, really well-considered things and, and have got a very good choice of words, for, at least from my perspective, but you don't like it. And so mm. it's funny, you know, like the personality is so tangible, but it's often so hard to describe. So tangible yet undescribable. <laughs> but, but, but more important than what someone's saying. What do you think about that, James? I think that's really interesting. <laughs> um, but I, I think I can think of an example. Um, and that was... John Howard after Port Arthur Massacre, right? Because what happened in Australia was the, the biggest mass shooting in the history of the world, I believe, in the Western world. No, 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 Australia. Australia, I think, at the time, dude. Um, and then John Howard basically came out and said, right, that's it. No more guns. <laughs> We're taking all of your guns. And, like, if you can think of any sticking point in the political drama or theatre in America right now, it is, you know, Democrats are threatening to take away your guns. Um and be that as it may, this is exactly what John Howard did. And it was wildly unpopular. But, you know, he did it um, in spite of the fact that it was unpopular because he believed it was the right thing to do and that it would reduce um, gun rate fatalities. And that just spoke to me as someone with immense amount of integrity to do something so politically unpopular, uh, to put his you know, entire career and his entire party on the line to do something that he believed was right. Mm. I think just sort of getting back to it, you know, personality or likability, I'm just going to rephrase that, mm. being more important than policy is mm. huge. Um, yeah. And some people have this like generally likable uh, and then others have got like some people really like you and others really dislike you. So they're kind of a dichotomy and then others just people generally dislike. <laughs> so there's three categories. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say that Trump is kind of in the like-dislike category. Um, I can sometimes see him just like, I don't know, saying something and laughing and, and I'll smile and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not a big fan, but at certain times I'm like, you're actually, I think, enjoying things in an entertainer. Like he's a great entertainer. That's just not necessarily who you want as the president of the United States. Um, and I think that there are other leaders that just generally, you know, not likable. But mm. how do you sort of become likable? Like, what do you think? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this. Like, what is likability from a political leader perspective? Mm, mm. Well, I think this is where you can try to dissect what it is about Trump that was so powerful and resonated so well with, let's just say, under just under half of America. Um, and what, you, what I hear people say time and time again is like, he tells it like it is, um, which to me is translation for he is completely unfiltered. Right. Like, so if you think about one of the things um, that you would hear people really not like about Hillary is that you never really truly felt you knew what she believed personally. Like she would always just like move to whatever the popular um, uh, thought of it on an issue was to so that she could strategically maneuver herself into the best position to win the election. Whereas what the feeling was with Trump was that he literally just said whatever came off the top of his head. Um, and so even though 
if you look at the foundational aspect of how that resonates or translates into someone's ability to lead and have integrity and have uh, you know perspective and second order thinking, nobody's thinking about that. They're just thinking about, do I look at this person and hear what they say and feel like that they are telling me exactly what's on their mind? And I think mm. you know, that was something that translated very well with a lot of people. I like sort of one thing you said, which is, but to me, I've just sort of written down three things. One is that you're authentic. Um, two is that you choose words to provoke thought versus, so authentic versus inauthentic, uh, provoke thought versus tell you how it is, and then that you're enjoying it and that you can sort of have a bit of a laugh and you can see it versus very, being very serious here. Um, and to me, part of authenticity is saying something that people don't agree with. It's not trying to reverse engineer all of the things that Duncan wants to hear. Mm. But then when you say something that someone doesn't agree with, you do it in a provoking way. Look, I get that there's a spectrum of this. Here's to this. You know, I'm more up this end for the following reasons, um, but I can see why these other things make sense. And I think one of the key strengths of my view is this, but one of the key points that, that I think is, is a possible weakness is the following. And then others are like, ah, oh, okay. You know, rather than we must increase immigration and anyone who doesn't think so is a racist, you know, um, which is <laughs> often what, what some people can say. Mm. And then one of the things I think enjoying it, um, you know, Trump smiles and cracks jokes, whereas Hillary is really clinical. Um, and I think another example would might be Elon. Um, I think you can see him out there like laughing, having fun, sort of jokes and other things. And then I think Mark Zuckerberg is far more clinical as an example. Mm. Um, and so to me... Yeah, Zuckerberg is kind of perhaps more the, the <laughs> Hillary. Very, very, very intelligent, in my opinion. Very well researched. Um, and, you know, says some things. Are you now he, comparing Elon Musk to Donald Trump? Is that where you're going with this? <laughs> no, I'm comparing. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, like, to me, Elon is far more authentic and says some stuff which really gets himself into trouble. And honestly, I, I don't think that that was the right thing to do. But he is, in my opinion, really authentic he he provokes thought and he's definitely enjoying it some of the times also stressed you know mm. incredibly other times mm. but for me he's extraordinarily likable now i can get that there are people that don't like him for a number of reasons but i think he's wildly more likable than say mark zuckerberg mm. Mm. well so i'm going to try and make sense out of what i'm about to say but like for, for, <laughs> <laughs> i think trump is the most authentically inauthentic person there is in politics today. Ooh. <laughs> so in, inauthentic because he's just lying all yeah, the time? Yeah. He's lying all the time, but he's just so blatantly direct about it. It's almost just like, I don't care. Like, what I say becomes reality. So I'm just going to say it point blank to your face. Like, mm. it can be on on the news the day before record him him saying something completely counter to what he's about to assert but mm. and then he'll say like i never said that like that's fake news mm. and just like be so direct with it that like you can't help but hate yourself while you're doing it but you can't help but admire the sheer audacity of someone who can just do that Day in and day out, not like just once and like, oh my God, they're going to find out and like, oh, this is going to, you know, come back and get me. It's just like, just on and on. Like he's just created this layer cake of like, of disingenuous, um, you know, assertments 
that it's just almost just become too too much for it to unravel. Like it's just mm. it, it just collapses in on itself like a black hole. Hmm. So one of the things um, that I was sort of thinking about is that communication in the crisis I liked hearing this is a bit of a dichotomy. You need to be brutally honest whilst giving people hope. Um, and I think this is often the case of like politics or being likable is, is like living this dichotomy. How do you say something that people don't want to hear or they don't agree with in a way that they will listen to? To me, that's extraordinarily difficult. And I think that when I was sort of starting off um, working, um, I was trying very much to build work, Duncan, or to be good at work, as an example. Um, but then what happened is I, I, you know, I was trying to get good output and I didn't realize initially that that meant, you know, trying to be likable. I was trying to get as much done as possible. I was almost trying to be as clinical as possible. This is like, you know, whatever, 13 years ago. And I didn't get that likability was a huge part of it and mm. taking time for all these things. So it was like, good job equals most done. Most done equals most clinical, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I remember thinking like small talk during work time was like morally reprehensible. I wasn't paid to sit there and socialize. I was paid to sit there and do work for people. And I wanted to do a good job. And then I realized, hold up, getting to know people and being personable is going to help you do a better job. This is not wasting time. It's selfless and selfish. And so it took quite a while for me to realize that. And I think this is perhaps the measure that I'm now going to have. You know, yes, there are many things for a good politician, but is perhaps the most important thing likability. Not the only thing, but if you're dislikable, then everything else is so much harder. Mm. Well, I, I feel like, if there's one thing that Trump has kind of like instilled in the, the new world of, um, you know, political theater is this sense of like, you got to have the, 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 the amount of charisma necessary to get people's attention because mm. that might be one of the um, downsides of being in the world of um, abundant information is that how do you get people's attention now? And that's what I think Trump did um, to a, incredibly high degree during the initial election which was he sucked up all the attention like i remember mm. there was there, there, there was like this breaking news or there was a there was a you know headline news and then they went like breaking news trump about to walk up on stage to address a crowd and so they switched to the camera of an empty podium and just held it there for the next five to ten minutes before he got on stage like that was how much the media was addicted to just soaking up anything that Trump was doing at that time. Like everyone was thinking like, this is a complete clown. Like this guy is not going to go anywhere. And then he won the Republican nomination. And then they thought, well, he's just going to get absolutely taken to town by Hillary, who was a political savant, or uh, savant, or whatever it is. Um, oh, no. <laughs> savant, yes. Um... And he just completely rolled over her, not because he was better at politics than her, but because he was better at commanding attention. Yeah, um, it was a train wreck you couldn't not look at. <laughs> and so, again, I think he's an extraordinary entertainer, um, but not necessarily the kind of person that you want to be the president of the United States. Um, so I think 
One of the things which I didn't really understand, so political Disney World, again, there is a good and a bad side, and whichever team you're on is the good team and the other team's evil. Um, but to me, one way I sort of like to think about it is that everyone's trying to help. They've just got different ways of doing that. And so there are many, many, many different examples of this. So one would be, I don't know, sort of beliefs. So how would you think about this? Let's just see this. Fairness versus upholding order, as an example, or helping those who help themselves or helping those who cannot help themselves. Mm. And so to me, there's kind of not one right. It's kind of both. <laughs> they say that good laws um, sort of or principles remove the downside but interfere with the upside as little as possible. So, for instance, I don't know, you need banking regulators um, so that the banks don't I don't know, send shoddy loans or, or whatever but then you don't want to regulate 100% of it and allow them to find people. So there's this weird dichotomy and they're kind of mm. good counterbalances to each other. And so to me, they're, they're different sides and that they pull in different directions and that we have like whatever, two terms of one direction and then two terms of the other direction is actually pretty good. Mm. <laughs> and so to me, I kind of think of it not as, well, there's the blue team and the red team, but that they work together for the overall country, as an example, or the world, and that we need both of them, and that they're the yin and the yang, and that we go a little bit too far in one way, and then we go a little bit too far in the other way. But if we only had one, then we'd go way too far in one direction. Mm. So to me, I think that's part of the articulation of why I've voted left and then right and then left and then right, is because in certain issues, I think that they should go more that way, but then I think, okay, they've gone too far the other way. Um, and so for me, yeah, that I really think that there are counterbalances in a positive way, but that they're articulated and that they're, um, shown as kind of one's good and one's evil and that we should have a hundred percent of one and zero percent of the other. I'm like, no, I actually think that they're both good and they're both bad, but that 50% of each doesn't seem like too bad of an outcome to me. <laughs> so this to me goes back to the heart of, um, the start of this conversation, which is why is politics so interesting or so captivating? Um, and so my take on this is it's because, the like, to me, the beauty of politics is that we're actually all on the same team. We actually all want the same thing, which, let's to be um, overly simplistic, is prosperity. Right? So it's, um, it's not about there is this red and blue team and they want to destroy each other because there's just not enough, you know, seats on the plane or um, a land on the planet and we have to figure out how we're going to remove the other half. It's, no, we, we all agree that we want to move forward and have a prosperous future. We just have very different ideas about how to go about doing that. And so what is becoming dangerous is that in politics today, it is becoming this political Disney world where there is an overly uh, pernicious tendency to demonize otherwise or make enemies of the other side like you know when you just see and i know this is a very very small percentage of actual people but when you see people wearing t-shirts that says russia before democrats you get a sense of just how far down the rabbit hole this has gone <laughs> um but like at the end of the day when you when you remove the the ego when you remove the characterization from this and all you have is the philosophy of politics, then you can start to like pull apart, well, 
what are the merits in both sides? Because both sides have a lot of merit. Um, no, neither one side, when you think of it from a philosophical standpoint, I think, can can be a hundred percent right. I think you need to have both. But when you add people into the mix, that's when I feel like things invariably go south very quickly. Mm. I think it's you know they say that uh, sort of bears or people who are negative sound like they're intelligent and helping you out and people who are positive sound like they're trying to sell you something. So it's much easier to have this, this is bad, um, you know, negative sort of uh, vibe, you know, take root. It's sort of bad news spreads much faster than good news, as they say. Um, For me, one of the things is that I think society is much better than it was, you know, 50 years ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, And so, for instance, we have more rules or laws than we've ever had. But we can do more than we've ever been done before. So, for instance, the number of things you can buy has gone up. The number of jobs there are has gone up. You know, 200 years ago, there were 400 jobs. Now, they say there's half a million and expanding. 400 types of jobs. That, well, yeah, yeah that, that you can do everything you want to do. But for me, I, there's basically nothing that I want to do that I can't do. And I can do way more than I could 10 years ago. So, all else equal, I think the system is improving or, you know, you know, versus before. No one's saying it can't improve better. But it's so often and common that you just hear it's getting worse, blah, 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 you know, X, Y, Z. Now, there are things that need to shift. I'm not saying that. But if you take a zoomed out view, I do think things are getting better. And I just wanted to sort of talk like political Disney World. There's one right and wrong. But I think as an example, trade, fair trade versus free trade, support, workers versus employers, goal, personal freedom versus economic freedom, focus, society versus individual. Just take the first one, fair trade versus free trade. You want both. (laughs) I don't think that they're opposing. I think that the two can be mutually reinforcing. And that you want to make sure that, you know, I don't know, people are being abused um, and that there are worker rights. But you also want to make sure that you don't have one country able to sell the other country and the other country not able to sell the other one. And so this is one of the reasons that I think this is one of my main things that I thought Trump has done well, is he's made the world less positive on China. They didn't have fair trade. They could sell to us, they couldn't sell, sell to them. Um, sorry, fair trade, and they had different worker rights. So fair trade is worker rights and things like, you know, environmental protections. And then free trade is they can sell to us and we can't sell to them. So they had both of them was lumped to their side and they weren't moving in the right direction. So that they, I was fine when, you know, they joined the WTO in 2001, them having a different deal, a better deal. But the deal needs to normalize as their country becomes wealthy. And it was normalizing for a while, but then it went back under Xi Jinping. So to me, it's good that there is these two different philosophies Mm. that are trying to help push things in the right direction. And I believe overall that it is going forward, not backwards. Mm. So um, to take your point in terms of like, are we as a human species progressing? I would agree. I think we certainly are moving the human species forward. Um, there are a couple of things I would um, add to that maybe as point of consideration. One is like a lot of the political scientists are showing that as an identity, we are becoming more polarized. We are moving further and further away from each other in terms of how we choose to go about determining the way forward. Um, now, I know this is sensationalistic and I don't think it will happen, uh, at least on a percentage scale i don't think it's likely to happen but this is what they have been saying is what is the precursor of something like a civil war is that when you get to the point where you no longer listen to the other side and they are now just full blown the enemy that's when it becomes 
um, violent. And they seem, they, they're showing that this is actually going up to a very dangerous degree. Um, I think they can turn it around. I think they need to get a leader who can actually talk to both sides first before um, this thing starts to, um, to wane. But overall, the, the, um, the progress that we're seeing isn't necessarily from the political spectrum, I would think. I think it's more from the free market. I think it's more from the progress we're seeing in technology that is harmonizing and democratizing things like education, opportunity, um, uh, and, you know, like, uh, what is it? Spreading of information. But like, before I go down that um, rabbit hole, I think the other thing you were talking about, which is super interesting, is like, you know, these seemingly opposing concepts or principles that are actually more, um, to your word, uh, mutually beneficial, I think it was. They've got the um, same goal, just a different strategy for the goal, if you Exactly. Right. And so that's why it's so, so similar to politics. So, like, you know, maybe we can talk to, like, what I consider to be the three main um, dimensions of politics and, like, talk to what we think about each of the different ends. So, like, the first one is libertarianism versus, um, like, liberty? Uh, liberalism, sorry. So, like, libertarianism believes in freedom of the individual, whereas liberalism, I believe, is more about equality and more about, you know, like, helping those who can't help themselves kind of thing. Um, And I don't think that you can just have one or the other, like you, well, like like you and your point with trade, I think you need to have a bit of both. Yeah, um, there's an old saying which we say here, you know, everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. Uh, another one is adherence too closely to one doctrine is dangerous. So they say in economics, as an example, you need to layer together all of the different doctrines. You're not just supply side. You're not just demand side. You're not just a monetarist. You know, you're not just on and on and on, right? So you kind of need to balance all of them in a way that works well. Um, and that's difficult because it's much easier for people to understand oh, supply side economics, which is, you know, trickle down economics, mm. demand side economics, which is, you know, Keynesian, like, okay, the government steps in and, you know, has a lot of pr- projects, etc. And to, the point to me is it's not one or the other. It's, it's you know, both. And then monetarists, which is like, you know, what's the central bank doing and, and how, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and to me, layering things together is, I think, what's been happening. The world's more complicated. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> It's, it's not necessarily portrayed in such a way. Um, so to me, yeah, the, the way that we should be trying to do things is to understand that each idea is just a little theorem that helps us hopefully more than it hinders us, but it doesn't work everywhere, works somewhere, and needs to be layered together with all of the other ones. And that's complicated. That's super complicated and it's a super mm. difficult narrative to sell to the voting public. Yeah. Like I completely agree. So, like, one way that I find helpful to kind of, like, break these things down is, like, if, let's just look at um, progressive versus conservative as an example. So, the left side of any um, Western government generally is more progressive. Uh, and the way they um, view that, um, well, the way that is, uh, I guess, represented is social progress equals evolution, right? So, like, we can make a better world for ourselves. We can bring in better ways of living. Whereas conservatism generally is skewered to the right. Uh, social progress is more related to maintaining the status quo. You know, let's protect the things that are, um, you know, that are, that are good about the world. Let's preserve what is working. Let's make sure that we, you know, um, maintain this status, like this, this world order kind of thing. And so when I look at those 
seemingly opposing spectrum where I see them being required to help each other is kind of like thinking about, well, if progressivism is your head in the clouds, then conservatism is your feet in the ground. And if you didn't have your feet in the ground, you'd float away off into the clouds and disappear and lose yourself. <laughs> Whereas um, without, without progressivism, your feet would just be stuck in the ground and you wouldn't go anywhere and you'd end up starving to death. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I do. I think it's a sort of nice way of looking at things. Um, I thought I'd just come back to one of James's points from earlier, um, which is that polarization has gone up. Um, so there's evidence of this in many different places. Uh, but one is, for instance, politicians in America, and they don't necessarily always vote with their party, which is more typical, for instance, in Australia or the UK. And so the number of ones on the left voting with someone on the right policy or the ones on the right voting with someone on the left has gone down systematically. Another example is just uh, surveys of people saying, would you be comfortable with your children marrying someone of the opposite yeah. <laughs> political party? And it was like 30 years ago, much higher. And now it's much less likely. <laughs> it's like um, now the most polarizing yeah, um, they're, they're, single characteristic. Right. You, know, you, you can't have same-sex marriage. Like You can marry whoever you want as long as they're not from the opposite party <laughs> you know, that, that I currently vote for. Um, I think there are sort of two key things that have driven this um, polarization and it and it is real one is economic so after world war ii america was the only country left standing and europe and asia had blown themselves up and so they had all the industrial base and so then they built cars and everything else and they exported them to europe and etc and what happened out of this is that the unions got their uh, employees a very good deal so they're the only industrial base and so they got um america was more than half of global gdp and then they the workers took a very big slice of the pie and then what happened is that Europe got back on its feet and Germany started making cars, etc. And Asia got back on its feet and Japan started making cars. And so there was a deal that was unsustainable because they were effectively unskilled labor working at General Motors, right? And this means that if they compete against someone who's got whatever, half the wage or a quarter of the wage, they can't really compete. And so General Motors went from 55% market share in the US down to, I think, 17% now. Still today in the US, if you're a General Motors plant, unskilled labor, I think it's $33 an hour plus benefits, whereas a similar unskilled labor job in, say, a restaurant is like $13 an hour. And so you can walk in and two days later be kind of up to speed, right? And so they had got themselves a very good deal, which was unsustainable for the long term. And so you had these people that thought the future was going to get better, but actually it was a one-off win that was going to be eroded. And so that's happened since the sort of 60s. And that's why you see, okay, yes, these people haven't had a real wage increase in 30, 40 years. Like, yes, it's true. But they had an unrealistically high one based on a specific set of circumstances, which has been unwinding as the rest of the world gets on its feet. You don't have any new people to be incorporated. So there was, you know, Eastern Europe and then the USSR fell and they got incorporated and China wasn't part of, you know, got trade and now they are. So there are no new, you know, large pools of people that aren't part of trade. Yes, there are people that in Africa that aren't well integrated, but they're not behind a place you literally can't trade. So there's no new cheap labor that can come online and undermine. It's fully incorporated. And so from my perspective, you've already seen this in the last couple of years, the wages of people uh, at the bottom end going up and you've also seen factories starting to come back to America as an example versus going to China. So that was part one. And then part two, um, which is the sort of second part of this, is the media landscape has changed fundamentally. So the internet's come along and it used to be that, you know, there were people that a limited space and people had to choose and there was unlimited. And so then you had people that had a business model instead of, you know, getting paid or whatever, it was just to get eyeballs or ears. 
And often the best way for that was to say extremist things, Alex Jones, etc. And so you had that occur. And I think that the peak of the bad of that was the 2016 election, where Facebook was effectively caught off guard. There were more than 50% of all of the actual news consumption. And they were not sort of, you know, they were able to be hacked and to have fake news pushed through it. And so you see them doing a much better job now where they're dealing with fake news around coronavirus and that they have, you know, political, uh, you know, checking going on. And they also have much more um, noting towards sort of reputable things. So to me, the two reasons why polarization occurred, an unreasonably high wage for, say, factory workers and media that was pushing people to the edges are both unwinding now. And so that we're at the peak of this. And I think no one would wish the coronavirus, but actually it's bringing humanity together as opposed to where you have an economic-led recession, which is like, well, then some humans stuffed up and they hate the humans. People hate the virus, not humans, right? And so to me... It's really good that we're not eating each other right now. We're trying to eat the virus, you know. And so I believe that we're at the peak of the polarization and that we should hopefully go back from here. Well, I certainly hope you're right. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, nothing nothing um, brings people together like a common enemy, uh, which mm-hmm. is also interestingly similar to one of Tim Urban's previous posts on tribalism. Like, So mm-hmm. what, what rung of the tribalistic circle are we now operating at? Probably the highest one, because this is a global human, humanity threat. Um, but I want to go back to the really interesting point you raised about the, um, I think, was it the New Deal, the original New Deal? Um, I'm not no, sure. that was um, from Roosevelt in the Great Depression, which was before World War Two. Okay, um, and I was talking about so that that was yeah, no, nothing to do with what I was talking about. Okay, not cool. that, but, yeah, but, yeah. That, but what you were talking about was this arrangement that the um, the working class had at that time, um, which was not sustainable. And I think that to me speaks to this growing, well, the, the sentiment today that things are no longer as good as they once were. For a lot of people in America, um, because if I understand correctly, you know they had this uh, like this agreement where they were being paid very well for a job that was um, you know replicable in other parts of the world, and when they were, those um, were no were nowhere near paid as much, and they they became a lot more competitive, and so this led to what I think would be part of the reason why there was an absolute decimation of the middle class. In, a, in the United States. I think it's a very excessively strong that they've gone backwards, not decimated. One factor, yeah. one yeah. factor. But like all of this kind of helps you understand why someone who can come up with a slogan like make America great again can tap into the hearts of so many people who feel like that they were promised a better future, but that's slowly being taken away from them. Um, whether that's true or not, it might be the perception for a lot of people. And I think this goes back to the original um, premise that you and I were talking about. It's not so much like what can you, what can you do? What are your policies? How are you going to instill, um, you know, a better life for people? It was how can you make me feel? <laughs> like what emotional triggers will you draw on so that I will feel like I am completely um, buying into whatever your message is? And I think that was like. Like, for me, Make America Great Again was one of the most, like, crass, like, um, imagine, uh, machinations of, you know, someone like Donald Trump. But it worked. It seemed to have really, really worked. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think just to add one point to the inequality thing, so inequality globally has gone down. So, for instance, there's things like the Gini coefficient, which is like top 10% versus bottom 10%, or, you know, top 20% versus bottom 20%. So they have um, improved. So, for instance, we've listed huge amounts of people out of poverty. It's just that in America, it's gone up. Um, and that I was positing was for a reason that they had made, a, you know, been able to bargain through the unions for a very good deal at a point where America had, you know, more than 50% of global GDP, but that that deal wasn't sustainable. However, I think that there's no new cheap labor pools around the world. And so that there's no more debasing of that part to happen. So inequality in America should bottom uh, now-ish. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying like today, but like for 30, 40 years, it was it was going up. And I think maybe it's sort of at the bottom and in 10 years from today, it'll be lower. It also, it will have decreased as an example. Uh, and that people believed that things would get better, but they had an unrealistically high. So happiness equals ex reality minus expectations. So they had expectations that were too high and that these expectations, I think, are now very low <laughs> um, and that they will improve and it won't per se be because of policies from the Republicans or policies from the Democrats. It'll be because of the global environmental context of which that they operate in. Mm. And someone will be in the, the government at that point and they'll go up and then they'll claim that they did it and people might believe them. <laughs> but it wasn't due to either side having good or bad policies to me. I mean, not saying the policies didn't help or hurt. I think the minimum wage is too low as an example, but that they were never going to be able to keep the car industry there if they were charging five times as much per hour. That, that doesn't matter about what the minimum wage is. It's just never going to happen. Mm. So, like, coming back to this oversimplification, right? So, one of the things why, um, you know, Tim Irvin, uh, I guess, described this whole semblance of politics being a political Disney world is this, what I think is a very, very human, um, human characteristic, like a feature, not a bug, is that we tend to want to dehumanize others as a default, especially if they're people who disagree with us. Um, and so like, I, like there was a chart that um, he has in his latest article where um, you're, you're a one or a zero, right? You're either mm. one perfectly good or you're zero perfectly evil or bad. And then there's mm. like 0.5-ish in the middle, which is like actual, where actual humans actually are. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, we're all shades of gray. It's, it's, um, you know, people... Um, think that a hero of their own story is one way of looking at it. So we all think that we we have the right answer, or I I, I think people like to think that they they know the right answer. Um, and so it's not about I am opposed to you because I want you to be um, annihilated. It's I'm opposed to you because I think you're wrong. Um, but that's kind of like well I do that too. Like if I'm looking at someone and I try this very hard not to do this with Trump. I try very hard not to label Trump as zero. I try to find out, well, what is the 0.5-ishness of him? Like, even though I think personally he is a complete runaway um, narcissist, I still think there's parts of Trump that think that he is a force for good in the world. Um, and I try and tease out what those elements are. And for other people as well, in work and personal life, um, it's very, very easy for me to just go to one or zero uh, in most people that I engage with. Yeah, one of the things I find really easy is the more you know someone, <laughs> the more you listen. Mm. Um, so, like, I don't know, I have different political views to my mother on some occasions, right? And I will, you know, I, I believe, try to listen to her. Um, 
Whereas, you know, with James, if he's got something, you know, that's different to me, I'm like, oh, cool. Whereas someone else, I'll just almost write them off immediately. ignorant. <laughs> and so this is this sort of, I don't know, really bad thing. It's like, try to treat others as you would like to be treated. You know, have you changed your mind on things? Yes. Okay. Well, is it conceivable that others could change their mind on things? Yes. You know, have you had an idea which you, in hindsight, think is not correct? Well, if you've changed your mind, the answer is yes. So it's not like you were right and then you were right. You know, you're, you were right until you changed your mind because there was a new right. Sometimes you've you've actually had the wrong one. <laughs> um, and so for me, I think this Disney political world, you know, people are right or wrong. If I could change one thing, it's kind of tries basically that politicians should be publicly explaining why they're changing their minds and should be changing their minds on not everything all the time, but not nothing ever, which is what it feels like. Often mm. if a politician changes their mind on something, it's career-ending. Mm. I feel that they need to, ideally, when they're coming in, here's the history of my thoughts. Now, not from, because like when I was, I don't know, quote-unquote asleep, and I was just regurgitating the thoughts, for instance, of my parents. Um, now I, I hope to slowly be able to become more and more of a person I choose to become, uh, not just a product of my circumstances. Mm. And that... I've changed my mind on many, many, many things. Um, and so I think that it would be great if people were publicly showing this and then changing their minds and explaining, not just, well, before I was right, now I'm also right. Well, I actually think that in hindsight, what I was saying doesn't make sense and I was missing part of this and not understanding. So to me, if people did that, I hope the whole tenor of the conversation could change. Mm. I, I completely agree in the sense that it would be great if this was the way people were allowed to think in politics, i.e. Um, you could genuinely come out and say, look, I had a position on this X years ago. Since then, it has come to my attention and I've since changed my opinion on this particular view. But like, like what you said, if, if that happened, it can be considered political suicide. And I think mm. that's one of the reasons why, unfortunately, Trump has been so influential and maintained his influence is because he had never back down on anything, if anything, he doubles down. And that's a really unfortunate, um, I think, uh, like effect that we are seeing has, um, you know, gone in his favour to see that it works when you don't back down, in fact, you double down. As opposed to, like, having someone um, with the ability to say, like, I have evolved my thinking on this. Like I remember when Obama was saying, like I have had an evolution on my thinking with um, regards to same-sex marriage. And so like, you know, we talked about this before with the Overton window, it would, you know, very much aligned with it becoming into more of a generally accepted uh, concept. And so he kind of moved his thinking along with that. But almost always we hear in politics today about politicians either saying, check my record, or just not arguing to the person in front of them, but arguing to the person from 10 or 20 years ago and saying like, 20 years ago, you said this, or you voted on that. And that just completely takes us away from the present where we can actually have an honest conversation. Hmm. I thought I'd say one thing, like, I do think Trump changed his mind. I just don't think that he necessarily says that he was wrong in the past. Hmm. <laughs> so for instance, recently, we will all be up and rearing by Easter in the US. No, no, now we have to go and stay till the end of April. Uh, and so 
he will do things and then you'll see him sometimes reading from the teleprompter and he's like trying to be a good boy trying to do what they say and then he gets halfway through and he's like stuff it <laughs> he goes on a random tangent <laughs> uh, so i do think that um trump definitely you know has changed his view on different things um and you know but sometimes he's he's not willing to admit he's wrong i think that's that's fair but i yeah. do think he, he has changed his mind in different places yeah one thing i sort of sorry I was going to say that's that's a much be, um, better way of characterizing it. It's not about right. whether or not you change your mind, but about whether or not he's admitted he's wrong. <laughs> but I also think he admits that he he's changed in certain circumstances. He's just not typically good at it, and yeah. so I, I don't think it's a fair characterization to say that he never does it and he always doubles down. I think that's probably going a little far. Yeah. Um. One thing I like is that if your all of your beliefs align with one party, then you're not a clear thinker. And so mm. one of the sort of games I like to play is. What's the things that I like from one party and the things I dislike? And what are the things that I like from another party and what are the things that I dislike? And to me, whilst personalities, are, uh, I think, are important and I think is often how most people vote, it's not necessarily what's going to affect you in your life. It's more their policies. <laughs> they could be a wonderful, nice, likable person with the worst policies and their likability is not going to change their policies. And vice versa, a really unlikable person with good policies, but their policies kind of what matter. And so, to me, sort of one thing um, that I think, you know, is something, for instance, that say on the left they could look at more is more importance for innovation. Um, and so, you know, all the sort of, you know, repetitive jobs are going away and we can't stop that. We don't want to try to keep bad jobs. And also the jobs that go away are typically the sort of jobs who don't want low paid and rep repetitive. And the new jobs are high paid and interesting. <laughs> um, so the, the job is to get people to be able to have those jobs, i.e. training, but also to create the new ones. Um, and I think you've seen some countries like Israel and Singapore have a government helping, not the only way, to really help set up strong you know, innovation and startup community that has become self-fulfilling. Um, and I think that, yes, we should have worker rights and yes, you know, we should minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that the left doesn't focus anywhere near as much on this side not on protecting jobs, but on creating new jobs as much as they should, as an example. Mm. All right, so um, like fair point. And there's something like, so what I agree with the with the left is generally is, I think we should be doing more to reduce the wealth gap, right? So not necessarily by giving more money directly to the bottom, but by giving them like more opportunities. So things like, you know, universal healthcare. Um, it's important, uh, I believe, because it brings a lot less stress on losing your livelihood due to being sick. Um, things like more access to education, which provides people with more opportunity to level themselves up and lift themselves out of their current situation. Um, where I disagree with the left side, and I think this might actually just be a, um, a, a side effect of it having gone too far to the left, is this is the social justice ideology, um, where people are now saying that they believe they have a right not to be offended. And so, like a real bugbear of mine of what seems to be happening on the university campuses um, is this wholesale shutdown of voices, ideas that are deemed to be as a threat to people's own safety. Like, you know, let's let's talk about safe spaces and microaggressions at another time. Um, so I think this is why it's really important to, you know, what we've been saying here is that, like, if we go down one side, it's not like there's an end point. It, it seems to, like, just keep going and going and going. And that's where it just gets more extreme. So we, I think we need both sides to keep a balance. 
and we need a balance to, you know, in order to ensure that we're always being honest about what is the right way forward, in my opinion. Hmm. Um, I've got to run today, so we might have to be slightly less than an hour. So just sort of in, in summary town, um, the world is very, very complicated. You're complicated. <laughs> you, you evolve and the world evolves. So to me, labeling something as good or bad or a one or a zero is almost always counterproductive. To me, we need to be trying to see what's good or bad about something, that you're good, some good, some bad, where something works, where something doesn't. We should be trying to not have adherence too closely to one doctrine, but to layer as many doctrines together in an intelligent way you know, as possible. And I think that we should be trying to hopefully look at the policies that people have as well as the personalities, but I'm not sure that's necessarily happening at as deep a level as we could. Um, and part of this, I think, is that if politicians were able to talk about why they were changing their mind, um, that might change the tenor of the conversation. Um, and I, I hope, you know, that these are things that can occur. Um, and I think that we're at the bottom of inequality in America, so it's going to get better, um, but not more inequality, less, and that the media situation, which was pushing to polarization, is going the opposite direction. We are on top, getting more and on top of fake news. It'll never be done, you know, putting the right things forward with Facebook, YouTube, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to your original uh, summary point, the world is complicated, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think what that what hap- what that leads to is, at least in my life and my experience, is um, is a complete. Uh, decision to not be involved in the political process because I thought it was too complicated. And so what I think can happen is, well, as as your mind goes, it tries to find the simplest thing it can hold on to in terms of conceit. And so for me, that was the individual. And um, for a lot of people, I believe, similar to what the, this whole point about political Disney is, this idea of good and bad. If I can align myself with something I believe to be good, then everyone else is bad. That makes more sense to me. Whereas what I think we should be trying to do is finding ways to introduce people to these political concepts in a much more, when I say dehumanized, I mean ways that remove the sense of needing to pick a side and seeing the benefits of having a progressive uh, ideal but also seeing the benefits of having a more conservative ideal. Understanding what it means to, you know, put forward um, individual freedom, but also understanding what it means to put forward things like uh, equality for all. And I think if we can try and create simple building blocks, that's how we can create a much more sustainable structure over time. Uh, Rather than continuing to go down this rabbit hole of uh, political theatre, you know, charismatic leadership where we align ourselves more to how someone makes us feel or whether we like them as opposed to understanding what it means to put someone like this in power. Mm. Wonderful. All right, James, I'll see you soon. Cheers, Duncan. Bye.